Hi, I'm Amber and welcome to the Lone Star Keto Podcast. Today, I'm super excited to have Dr. Robert Sivas on the show today. He is certified in adult general surgery and pediatric surgery but he specializes in weight management and bariatric surgery, which I find extremely fascinating and I can't wait to pick his brain. Welcome, Dr. Sivas. Sivas, I always say that Thank wrong. you. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Amber. It's, it's great to be here. I look forward to this. Yay. Okay, so the first thing I want to ask you, since you've been doing bariatric surgery for over 18 years and you've done like, what would you say, like 8,000 of these surgeries? Yeah, a little bit more than 8,000, yeah. yeah. Okay, what I see, and, and I find this very sad, I actually personally know over 15 people who have had at least one bariatric surgery, some of them two. And what I've noticed out of all the people I know, and like I said, these are some of these... <laughs> my best friends, okay? So I'm not just saying, oh, I saw somebody on Facebook. No, I know these people. Almost every single one of them, but one, has uh, gained all their weight back or a majority of it. Only one person has kept everything off and has done wonderful, but they have changed their life, literally. I, I'm just curious, why is that? Why do you think, what, what is the issue? A very good question, and it's it's a concern that I have with a lot of my colleagues in the surgical field. So every fat person that I know, including myself, and I use that word liberally because the day I stop thinking of myself as a fat person, I will be again. I've lost 98 pounds as I'm sitting here. So um, every fat person, by definition, is an expert at failing weight loss programs. Um, if you're heavy enough, if you've topped out close to 300 pounds like I did, you've tried a whole bunch of different strategies to lose weight because the concern there is I'm fat, I want to lose weight, I want to, it's about weight loss. Mm -hmm. And the most successful diet or calorie restrictive weight loss strategy that any human being can undertake is bariatric surgery. The, the way I look at it is bariatric surgery is comfortable starvation is by far the most effective way to lose weight. But here's the problem, and this is what most people don't understand. Excess weight is not the problem. Excess weight is the result of the problem. So if you don't understand why you gained the weight in the first place and correct that, no matter how much you your weight you lose, no matter how much surgery, surgical weight loss you have, if you don't correct the underlying reason or change the underlying reason why you gained the weight, you are going to gain it back. Or, and what I, one of the other things I dislike about certain bariatric surgeries like gastric bypass or duodenal switch, they're a magic bullet. You can't eat, so you lose a ton of weight. The problem is you're then trading in the disease of obesity for the disease of malnutrition. So those people may not gain all their weight back, but they become profoundly malnourished. And that concerns me as a doctor and as a surgeon and as a human being. So our approach is that when people come in, everybody comes in through the door because they want to lose weight. They want to get rid of their diabetes. They've got metabolic syndrome. They've got hypertension. That's what drives people in. <clears throat> That's like an alcoholic coming into my office and saying, hey, doc, I've just got out of jail. I've had five DUIs. I don't want to go back to jail. The DUI is not the problem. The alcoholism is the problem. And I have to help them to understand that, yes, we want you to lose weight. But let's start at looking at the root cause. And the root cause of obesity, like with alcoholism, is a deficient, a comprehensively deficient emotion management system. And the development of a relationship and a relationship with an instantly gratifying drug that you then use in a dysfunctional way to fill the void of emotion management systems. And whether that is alcohol, crystal meth, crack cocaine, or carbohydrates, the reason we use carbohydrates to excess, not just you, to excess, is to fill that emotion management void. And if we don't help that patient to understand the problem is substance abuse and that you cannot control the relationship, diet's all about control. And it's the one thing that a, a, a fat person can't do is they, they've lost the capacity and they never will have the capacity to control their relationship with carbohydrates. So 
the, the starting point is for, to help people to understand this is not a weight problem, it's a substance abuse problem. And because the substance is sugar, it made you fat and sick and diabetic. So let's deal with the root cause. And the way I approach my patients is this, you know, they all come in, they want surgery, or they're thinking about surgery, or maybe they're not even thinking about surgery. I say, okay, let's do this. <clears throat> let's set a date for your surgery. Let's set a date for your surgery in three months time or in six months time, you're absolutely going to have surgery. But between now and then, we're going to work on your addiction. And if you're able to begin to transform your way of life and vicarious to that transformation, you begin to do well in terms of losing weight, getting rid of your diabetes, your blood pressure, your heart disease, whatever it may be, gets better, your PCOS gets better. Then when the date for the surgery comes, let's kick that ball down the field a little bit. And let's postpone that by another three months so that you're not doing this forever. You're doing it with kind of set points as to forward progress. And then if you get to a certain point where you've had a big relapse or you're struggling and you can't move forward, then the surgery becomes a tool that you use to help you along the journey rather than screw this. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to have surgery. Surgery is not an alternative to weight loss or to uh, carbohydrate addiction management. Surgery is a tool like Chantix that a smoker may use to quit smoking. You know, nobody ever will condemn a heroin addict from using methadone. But yet people condemn people from using surgery as a tool to lose weight. So you may need that help. You may need that assistance. And what I tell people all the time is my personal story is 21 years ago, I came close to having a lap band. That was the surgery of choice. I came to do within a week of that. Wow. But I did this for six months and I lost 60 pounds. So I said, hey, let's kick this ball down the field for three months. I got to that point and I'd lost 90 pounds. That was 21 years ago. Wow. I've had three major relapses of more than 30 pounds during that time. And I call them relapses where I gained more than 30 pounds back. I know exactly what I did. I gave myself permission to transgress and go back to carbohydrates. And you don't just go back on one day. It takes months before you realize, oh, God, look at me, and I'm heavy again. So I came close again to using that surgery. I'm now 21 years in. I'm still going to have my surgery, but perhaps <laughs> a few minutes after I'm dead of old age, okay? In other words, I'm comfortable with the concept that if I need it, I need it, but I don't need it today. But if I did, I would use it. And that's the mentality that I use. So it's not an all or none thing. It's not don't have surgery or do have surgery. It's use it as a strategy to help you. And if it's a tool that you use on a journey to health and happiness, why not? So, and people that use it in that way to assist them to, to address the underlying cause, those are the people that are successful long-term. The people that just use it to lose weight and are ignorant to and have not been educated by or ignore the addiction component are the people that are going to regain their weight just like they do on a diet. So long, long explanation, but I think it's critically important to ask that. So I'm very comfortable doing surgery, but you have to need your surgery. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? In other words, yeah, yeah. it's a tool for you when you're putting effort in, but you're struggling. Yeah, I, I love how you put that. I don't really feel that a lot of surgeons use that approach necessarily. And I'm not saying they're, you know, oh, bad or, you know, they're trying to hurt you or something or they just want money. I, I don't, I'm not saying that at all. I just don't think they necessarily um, fully implement that part of it. And, you know, I don't, you know, begrudge anybody for, for doing that. I, heck, I, I seriously thought about it too, but I'm a big old chicken. So I, I, I wouldn't, but you know, in my mind, I, I was jealous of the people who had the surgeries because I was like, Oh God, it must be so nice to not be able to eat. You physically can't eat. So how awesome, because that takes all that, you know, control, that diet mentality, like you said, but I still wouldn't have fixed my issue. You know? <laughs> so. That's exactly right. And you don't fix the underlying issue with that. So, you know, the problem with surgery and surgeons is that weight loss with certain types of surgery, sleeve bypass, is so darn effective. And if you just focus on the scale, and you ignore the underlying cause, it's effective.
active. They don't need to think about other things. And then when you regain the weight later, they either don't know who you are or it's so far down the road, three, four, five years down the road that they blame you. It's, it's very seldom the surgery that goes wrong. Sometimes it does. And that's why I don't do the more sophisticated surgeries, higher complication rate. But the surgeons really are there in a compassionate way to help you. They are just simplistic in their way of thinking that weight is the problem. Right. They haven't necessarily lived or done this. So, uh, you know, same thing with dietitians. Uh, you really get uh, two types of dietitians. I was speaking with Michelle Hearn about this the other day. Um, either skinny dietitians who've never had a weight problem or obese dietitians who've never understood why they had the problem. And the skinny ones will tell you, well, I eat in moderation, therefore you should be able to eat in moderation. They don't realize that that dogma doesn't work for me, okay? It's as ludicrous as asking an alcoholic to drink in moderation. Yes. And at the same time, the obese person has clearly not found that answer themselves, or they may have found the answer and are working on it. And I'm not saying look at their size or shape, but what I'm saying is, be compassionate about who you're taking care of, about who, if somebody cannot follow the advice you give, no matter if it's the best advice in the world, the, the advice is useless. And, and we don't, as, as caregivers, we're so evangelical about this work for me, you've got to do it. <laughs> no, I've got to sit in your shoes. I've got to be empathetic to your needs and say, okay, what are you capable of doing? I come from an authoritarian background. I can tolerate a great deal of austerity, but when I bump my head, I crash and burn. I deal with a lot of permissive patients who struggle to sustain change. They, they can initiate change, but they struggle with the sustainment of, uh, sustainability of that. I've got to know who I'm dealing with so that I can help them where they are, not where I want them to be. And that's so important. And a lot of doctors don't understand that because we are paternalistic. If I do the surgery, I can guarantee you're going to lose 100 pounds. Just show up. It takes, the, it takes a relationship and a partnership with a patient out of the equation. I have to partner with my patients because I can reduce your calorie consumption with surgery, but no surgery changes how often you put crap in your face or what you put in your face. That's your job. And that partnership works to the benefit of the patient. If I don't do my job or they don't do their, theirs, they're going to stumble and fall. Absolutely. So that's what we see us up front. Yeah. I, I wish my friends would have had you as a doctor because I really feel like they didn't have that element. I'm serious. And that, that makes me really sad because, you know, they, they went through this whole thing. And to me, that's a pretty uh, major thing for you to do, you know, to, to have to resort to that or feel like you had to resort to that. And then for it to, basically be for nothing. That's so sad to me. So in your opinion, I'm just kind of curious, um, what would you consider to be the ultimate um, patient that would benefit the most from this? Like, what would they look like? And I don't mean physically, but you know, like- yeah, Well, what... physically, they got to be fat. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or, you know, sometimes it's, a, it's an overweight, brittle diabetic because it works equally well. But you, if you're talking from a surgical perspective, um, I don't mind how they come into the, so that's a very complex question because <clears throat> nobody that comes into my office is ready for surgery. Um, there's a beautiful book by a guy called Prochaska, a group out of Connecticut called Prochaska, and it's actually about smoking cessation. And most people know this book. It's an iconic book in addiction management, and it's called Changing for Good. And it really is, these guys describe the process that people go through when they successfully address smoking as an addiction. And the process, um, when people start out, they're pre-contemplative and they've developed an, an incredibly sophisticated system to validate and justify why it's okay to smoke. And then slowly the negatives of smoking outweigh the benefits and it raises a degree of awareness that maybe I want to quit, but they're petrified. And then as a therapist, what you want to do is take them from a zone of pre-contemplation to a zone of contemplation, where they're actually thinking about the benefits of, of quitting more than the liability of giving up their drug. 
And then when they've contemplated that, and I call that looking at the size of the elephant. No obese person knows how massive their addiction to carbohydrates is because we eat opportunistically. So I could be walking through Costco shopping and I see a little lady offering something and I'm eating it without even knowing that I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. It's because that is the fabric of our lives. Um, it's a very opportunistic thing and we're unaware consciously that we've habituated to that. So we've got to look at the size of the elephant first. And so there's that, that's the contemplation side, side. We've got to look at how often and what we're eating. But the most important thing I try to connect my patients to is why are you eating right now? And no fat person ever eats because their body needs nutrition. We eat like smokers smoke. It's always because I'm having a little emotional moment and I need reprieve. And when I need a snack, when I'm hungry, it's not because my body is lacking selenium. It's because I'm having a little moment right now. I need something to calm me down. And my method of doing that, the instant gratification, that instant dissipation of emotional tension comes from carbohydrates, sugar or starch. The delivery system of sugar or starch is a snack. I need something to eat. And nobody, when they're stressed out, pigs out on broccoli and steak. So I have to help people to contemplate that, okay? And once they recognize how big this elephant is, then we can begin to prepare them for change. And one of the biggest issues I have with keto diets is, oh, here's your keto diet, start tomorrow, off you go. You are going to choke on the elephant. Nobody can eat an elephant in one day. You cut it up into little bite-sized pieces. So you didn't become fat in a day. You didn't become diabetic in a day. This is decades of, uh, of, of addiction. So you're not going to fix it in a day. But if you can contemplate and tolerate and make a small, really tough change until it doesn't become that tough, until it becomes, hey, this is okay, then you take on the next change. So we go from pre-contemplation to contemplation to planning and preparation, then to action in sequence, eating the elephant. And then we continue to do that. I hate the word maintenance. That's the one place I, I argue with Jessica because... There is no such thing as maintenance. You're either moving forward or backwards. And as long as you keep challenging yourself. So in addiction management, there are no goals. There are just milestones. The milestone is to lose weight. It's not a goal because what do you do? Okay, I've lost my weight. Now what? Can I go back to eating carbohydrates? You know, nobody mm-hmm. celebrates a year of sobriety with a case of beer. But how many fat people don't celebrate 25 pounds of weight loss with a tub of ice cream? I, you know, and, and boom, that's a relapse. So, so the point is that you set new milestones for yourself. Now, the beauty is at 300 pounds, I couldn't run a 5K. After 98 pounds, that's my next goal is you, know, you run the 5K and then maybe you do, so you've learned to play the guitar. You do things that give you emotional support, that give you positive pride in an uncontaminated way that builds up your self-esteem and your self-confidence that every addict self-esteem and self-confidence is in the toilet by definition. And, and no matter what facade you present to the world, that's the issue. So who's my ideal patient? My ideal patient is one that is at least willing to overcome their fear and is able to step into um, an empathetically safe relationship with our, pra- with our practice where they are willing to take the risk of vulnerability to begin to address things. And I, the, the phrase I use, they're willing to try to kill their best friend because their best friend is killing them. And at whatever pace, at whatever rate. And the other thing I tell people is your best friend is a zombie because every day she wakes up and she comes after you again. So you've kind of got to put her aside all day long continuously. But slowly over time, you develop your self-confidence, you develop strategies that help you. So my best patients are those that are willing to be the tortoise, not the elephant, that are willing to roll up their sleeves and put hard work in every single day for the reward of self-esteem, self-confidence, weight loss, pride in themselves. That's my best patient. And I don't care how fat that person starts out. I don't care how, str- how bipolar that person is, how, how, how many struggles that person has had. It's the willingness to change 
that is far more important than how wealthy, how successful, how smart. I don't care. I don't care. It's willingness to change. That's perfect. And I think a lot of what I have seen personally is that people go into it thinking this is an easy fix. It's not. It's still work. Like you, you call it a tool, but you know, you still got to put in the work or otherwise you're going to have the same results as anything else eventually. And so that, that makes me really sad, but yeah. You know, I, uh, just you throw out a couple of words that always are red flags to me um, when I first see patients because they, they, they use some of that language. The first thing is a fix. No, there's no fix. This is not a problem you're ever going to fix. This is a problem you're going to put into remission. It'll always be there. You speak to an alcoholic that's been sober for 40 years. They have got their 40-year chip. They will tell you every day, I'm just a little bit vulnerable to drinking and I've got to keep that muscle memory at bay. It doesn't go away. And the minute you think it does, it, it'll come back to bite you. Because every day when emotional, ten, emotional, unexpected emotional events happen to you, you've always got the option of going backwards to your old relationship or forward to a new relationship you've created. But this never goes away and this is never perfect. So there is no fix, but there's an ongoing change and a trust in yourself that there's no need to default. I call that arrogant integrity. How the hell, that's disgusting. <laughs> How can you smoke? Said the ex-smoker. Um, and, and if you develop disdain and disgust for carbohydrates, you're far less likely to go back, especially if you found other ways to deal with things. So that's the first thing. The second thing is nobody ever is an expert. Michael okay. Jordan and LeBron James are not experts at basketball. They will tell you themselves, they are students of the game. The Dalai Lama is not an expert at meditation. He's a student of meditation. No matter how great they are, there's always room for improvement. So there is no result. There is no end point. What you're doing is chasing two things. And, and in addiction management, or in fact in humanity, there are two things that all human beings chase. And I call them the two H's, health and happiness. And there is no end point to either. There is no measurable end point to health or happiness. So for the rest of your life, if you're continuously chasing health and happiness, you're moving forward. The day you think, okay, I've reached my goal weight. I'm an expert at weight. No, that's the day you start sliding backwards. So on the morning of the day I die, hopefully as an old man, it might be tomorrow, it might be tonight, but on the morning of the day that I die, I'm going to ask myself, what can I do today to make me more happy and the people around me happier and healthier and myself happy and healthier? And, and whatever, can, you know, I can be sure I'm going to die one day. Um, <laughs> and how it happens, it's not going to be at my own hand. Yes. I'm going to tell you what, if I had some pom-poms right now, I would get up and cheer because I love what you said. I love it. it took me 40 years to figure this out, that it's ever evolving, ever changing. You, there's no finish line. You keep, it took me that long to get it. <laughs> and that's why I'm but so you know passionate. Right, while, right. The first little while it's deprivational. You've got to give yes. something up. Right. But very quickly, you start chasing new things. And, and the cooler, you know, when I see fat people for the first time coming into my office, they love to tell me who they used to be because they cannot envision a future. So they'll bring in, in college, look at me, I used to be skinny, I was a cheerleader in college. Or they tell me what they used to do, who they used to be, and their whole life is lived in the past because there is no future. And then for a while, they have to give up the present to attain a future. So you've got to make a sacrifice, which is deprivation. I've got to kill my best friend. And the time I know someone's going to be successful is when they turn that corner and they come in and they start telling me about what they're doing and what they're going to do and who they're going to be. Mm. And I'm, I'm planning out, I'm going to run the 5K. I'm going to do this. I'm learning to play the guitar. I'm, when they start seeing a powerful future for themselves. They're still chasing it. They're still working on it. But then the effort becomes effortless. And that is the holy grail. Where yes. you're doing things every day. You're putting things in every day. But it's effortless. 
It's effortless. And that is the Holy Grail. That's what we're looking for. I love that. That is beautiful. Perfectly said. And I could not agree with you more that, of course, I don't have the experience like you do, but I, you know, I have lived it. So I get it. You've got the end of one, which is the most important experience. It is. It is. And I, I, I honestly, I don't think at this point would want to change that. I mean, yeah, I wish I wouldn't have had my health issues and all that kind of mess and it wouldn't have taken 40 years, but it's kind of got me to where I am now. And hopefully I can share that and help other people where maybe I wouldn't have been able to do that before because I wouldn't have the empathy or the, you know, whatever. So yeah. Right. Okay, so uh, just kind of real quick, if you had some, uh, like one piece of really strong advice to give somebody who is, claims they are just so carb addicted that they, I, I get this all the time in my coaching, I, I go for two weeks and I do so good and then just, I don't know what happens, I, two weeks is my maximum and then I just have this carb binge and I don't know what's wrong with me, I don't know what to do, I'm such a failure. What, what is my problem? Okay. So, so two issues there. Um, number one is that it's always, it's always an unexpected emotional event that trips you up. And um, the second part is when somebody does exactly what you said, they've choked on the elephant. They're looking at keto as this diet that works magically in two weeks because all the diet programs tell you you're going to lose 28 pounds in a week. That's absolute garbage. And even if you do lose 28 pounds in a week, because all diets fail. So their metric has to be instant weight loss. And they're a good program if they create instant weight loss. So the advice I give to that person is, number one, nobody, nobody quit smoking the first time. Okay? Nobody loses weight the first time they try. They, they may lose weight, but they're always going to bump their heads and hopefully learn from it. The second thing is never do a keto diet. Never do a diet. This is about behavioral change, right? Diets are, as I said, here's your sheet of paper, off you go. So that person choked on the elephant. You want to stop being the rabbit and begin to be the tortoise. In the, you know, the fable of the rabbit and the yeah. and, Take little baby steps, take little baby steps. And every day or every couple of days, challenge yourself to make another change. And then the only other concept that is critically important to let go of is the, the one thing that you absolutely do not have and never ever will have is the ability to control your relationship with carbohydrates. Every diet is based on control and it's the one thing that you do not have. The only way to deal with this is through distance. And I, the phrase I use is you have to protect you from yourself. You carry cigarettes in your pocket over here. You're always going to smoke. No matter how much chantix you take, you've got to crumple up the cigarettes and throw them away. And don't think that, oh, I, I like sweets. I don't eat chips. The, the, the chips and the cereal can stay in the house. Are they for my husband? Or <laughs> Of course, mm. you're going to trip. And f At some stage, you're going to trip and fall with your face planted deep in a bowl of mashed potatoes. So be humble about it. Understand that you do not have the capacity of control and therefore you have to protect yourself from yourself, not on your good days, but on that one bad day where you crash and burn. And set up the stage where as best you can to clear the environment so that even though you desperately want the wrong thing, it's not available to you. I'll give you a perfectly good example. I'm 21 years in. If there is a bowl of ice cream in my house tonight, I can guarantee you I will eat it. But I can guarantee you there's no ice cream in my house. And because I can't trust myself 20, 21 years mm. in. And, and most people don't understand that. And most people get cocky and say, oh, I've done this. for That cockiness will bite you in the butt. And if you do crash and burn after two weeks, step back from it. And it's OAC. Everybody, everybody makes mistakes. You're not a terrible person for failing. You're not a terrible person for making a mistake. We all do. I do. But what you do is you own the mistake. And in addiction management, it's binary. You either did or you didn't. I don't care how much alcohol the alcoholic drank. That first sip is the transgression. There's never, ever a valid reason for, for anyone to drink alcohol. And there are very few valid reasons for anyone to eat a carbohydrate. So that just makes the measurable easy. When you do eat a carbohydrate, 
That's a mistake, no matter how much you rationalize it. Oh, it was my birthday. Oh, it was just a strawberry. It was a berry. I don't care. I don't care what the rationalization was. You want to own the transgression, but not in a, I'm going to beat myself up way, objectify it. Okay, you know what? I made a mistake. My wife tied me up with duct tape, put a funnel in my mouth and poured <laughs> coke down my throat. That was a mistake. That's, that's the only way we ever eat. No, we make mistakes. It was my birthday. Okay, I own the mistake. I can't fix it. I cannot go backwards and change history. I can own history. I can see history, but I can't change it. But history is going to repeat itself. So what strategies do I need to put in my life right now so that the next time I'm in the same situation, I don't behave the same way again? And so, so it's ownership, analysis of what happened, and then correction. Develop a corrective action plan now so that when the time comes, you don't get into trouble. You see, one of the key things about addicts, we've lost the capacity of control. We've lost the capacity of making choices, but we have retained the capacity to make decisions. What's the difference? A choice is you open the fridge, there's a Coke and a Diet Coke, you're screwed, you're gonna drink the Coke. A choice is you go to a restaurant and you open the menu and it says crystal meth, crack cocaine, heroin, which one are you gonna have? You're screwed. Because in the moment, you're going to make the wrong choice. You go into a store to buy, um, you know, uh, uh, tampons and toilet paper, and you come out with ice cream and M&Ms. Mm. Um, and the reason for that is because you do not have the capacity to make a choice. But if you make a list before you go into the store, and you condition yourself to stick to the list, you're far more likely, it's not a guarantee, but you've made a decision, the list is a decision, you're far more likely to do the right thing. If you don't keep Coke in your fridge, you don't have to make a choice between Coke and Diet Coke. If you go to the restaurant and you know what you're going to eat and you know you're going to tell the waiter, don't put bread on the table, then you don't have to make the choice of whether I should or shouldn't eat the bread. It's not there. Uh, so as addicts, we retain the ability to make decisions which are preemptive. I knew last night what I was going to eat tonight. Because I don't want to arrive tonight and say, I'm hungry, what can I eat? But if I know, I can look forward to it. And if I can look forward to it, I can tolerate a degree of austerity getting there. So it's those little simple things that help us to overcome sudden unexpected moments of hunger. I love that. Now, you do realize that the wheels are turning in my brain and I have like about 20 uh, pre-planned memes that are going to hit Instagram. <laughs> so just be prepared. No, ask the questions according to the memes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know what the problem is, Amber? You talk so much, I can't get a word in edgeways. I know. I I'm chatty like that. Sometimes you just have to tell me, shh, just shh. <laughs> no, that's, that's, no, I talk all the time. I, I, I babble all the time. So... Go ahead. I like, I like bobbling. Okay, so um, we kind of had a little discussion beforehand, and I want to go ahead and, and talk about this in case we run out of time. But um, I have been noticing lately where sometimes I get these little comments about some of the posts I put out there because who I'm posting about doesn't have the uh, aesthetics that somebody who should be representing our community. And I'm finding that very distressing because just because somebody doesn't look a certain way doesn't mean they don't have something valid to say. And, you know, you don't know where they've come from. If somebody used to weigh 500 pounds, now they weigh 300 pounds, but 300 pounds is still probably more than most people start at, you know, they still have something very valid to say. What do you think about that? I think you're absolutely right. As I've said a few times in this discussion, um, this is a continuum of care. There is no endpoint. And the speed of your journey is far less relevant than being on the road. So uh, the slope of the curve really doesn't matter in this, in this scenario. As long as people are changing, that's critical. And Unfortunately, in obesity, as opposed to other addictions, the visible component is excess weight. You can measure every pound, but you have no idea what's going on in your, in your bloodstream. Uh, a guy that I absolutely love, Danny Vega, who is- I love him. I don't know Danny, but I mean, Danny has just got muscles. His muscles have muscles. He's iconic. 
Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, Danny go, will go to McDonald's and he'll get the, he doesn't do this, but he, he used this story and he said, you know, if I go into McDonald's and I get the Big Mac and the fries, um, people look at me and still see, think of me as being really in shape. And look, he can tolerate that because he's in good shape. And then they'll, they'll watch the obese person go into McDonald's and they'll say, look, that's why she's fat. Um, and it's unfortunately that visual is so wrong. And as you said, you know, I, I've got a patient, a very patient that I've become great friends with, started out at 710 pounds. And he is now 258 pounds. Wow. Okay. The guy's done that incredibly well. But his cardiologist, whenever he sees, and it's doc of the day, the cardiologist of the day, and he's got a pacemaker from 10, 15 years ago that is non-functional. He doesn't even need the thing. But when he goes to his cardiologist, the first thing they say is, oh, you've got to lose weight. So... It is just so frustrating for this guy. And he just smiles and he pulls out his fat picture and he says, actually, it's his fat picture. It's got to take two pages. And he says, dude. <laughs> but, but we lose trust in those people because those people are, they're critics. They're trying to hurt us with their noise to make themselves mm -hmm. feel better. And there's no compassion. So the first thing is this. If you take that person's blood work, I bet you it's going to be better than most people out there. So, uh, because you can't see what's under the covers unless you measure that blood work. And I bet you if she's lost 200 pounds and she's sustaining that change, then she's probably insulin sensitive. Now, at the same time, when I see patients coming in like that, I want to know what they're doing, not in an, in an accusational way, but in a way to make sure that they are still on pace and on track. But the other thing that also is interesting, that the fattest person is usually the healthiest carb addict. That doesn't make sense, but biologically, here's the way it works. Sugar in your blood vessels is, causes pathology. It causes damage, okay? So the way the body protects you from sugar in your bloodstream is to be able to, under the influence of insulin, rapidly remove sugar from the bloodstream to keep your blood sugar normal and to get the sugar into your cells and especially the liver and the fat cells rapidly turn it into sugar into fat. So if you are a high insulin producer, no matter how insulin resistant you are, you walk past a donut and you gain five pounds. But the reason you do that is because your insulin system, your genetics is actually protecting you from the damage of sugar by turning fat, sugar into fat. So the fattest people are often least diabetic, least likely to be diabetic. The person that's actually a hell of a lot sicker is that slightly overweight person who's profoundly diabetic. They can't produce insulin, so they can't remove the sugar from their bloodstream. The sugar builds up, and that sugar is toxic, causes the heart attacks, the strokes, all the diabetic injuries. So that person who's 500 pounds and dropped down to 200, most people can't get to 500 because they can't produce enough insulin. So, you wow. know, that, that person is just laughing and saying, dude, I'm going to outlive you. Um, but the other, the other issue that we're dealing with is this, and, and the whole concept of perfectionism. Um, and there's a subset of people that come from an authoritarian background who have been raised not to love the effort they put into life, but they create ridiculous expectations of themselves that are always unmet. And those people are perfectionistic and they're perfectionistic to themselves, but also to the, of those around us, around them. And the people that troll folks like that are typically authoritarian perfectionists, perfectionists that lack empathy and lack compassion. And if you are a perfectionist, you cannot be happy because no matter what you do to make yourself happy, it's never good enough. It is only when you trade in perfectionism for compassion toward yourself and toward others that you can actually enjoy what you do. There's only one person that I know of who, who can be perfect. And I haven't met him yet because he's the guy with long blonde hair and a beard, okay? And he's gone to dad. So the point is that when we are raised in an authoritarian manner and we're per perfectionistic, we apply perfectionistic attitudes to people around us. We raise our kids that way. But basically what you're doing is raising your children 
to have a vulnerability to addictive behavior because they cannot find joy, pleasure, and emotional resolution from the things they do. So you cannot find happiness from effort. So you have to find happiness or pseudo happiness from getting high. And that is that per that critic's liability. They don't have the compassion to say, wow, that's so impressive. You're on this journey. Now, one thing you live in a state where one of my icons and one of the people that has developed a very parallel uh, system of understanding um, human emotion management uh, lives. And I mean, I'm just this little guy in the undercurrent. This person is an icon. And um, her name is Brene Brown. Okay. And I don't know if you know who Brene Brown is, but <clears throat> I would urge anybody that is that perfectionistically critical of someone like your friend to go and spend a little bit of time on YouTube uh, listening to Brene stuff. Everybody knows who Brene is. You just, you, you just may not know the name. But her whole world is about guideposts to wholehearted living. And ultimately, if you live life and manage your emotional needs through the things that you do that give you pleasure, irrespective of outcome, you do not have a vulnerability to addictive behavior. You can be confident. You can be empathetic. You can be compassionate. The sad thing is those critics do not have the capacity for compassion because they're perfectionistic. Hmm. So you know what I do with those people? I block them. Yeah, that's, yeah, I, I just hope the person, these a couple of people that have had these really horrible uh, comments posted on, on, didn't see it, because that breaks my heart. I just think that is so cruel and so mean. And you Amber, know, the person with the problem there, right, the person with the problem is the troll, not the person, not true that you were, that you were, um, you're interviewing. I mean, yeah. she should be so proud of her success. Now, the way it works is I'm proud of what I did today because I did the best I could today. And guess what? Tomorrow I can do even better. It's not, I'm a terrible person. I failed today. And, you know, the challenge with so many people is to answer these two questions in a meaningful way. Do you believe every day you're doing the best you can? And do you believe every day the people around you are doing the best they can? So now I'm going to really compromise myself because the reality is this. Those people that are trolling that, that woman and criticizing her, those perfectionists, the sad part is they're actually doing the best they can. They just have no tools in their toolkit. Mm. So I can either block them if they're hurting me or I can take, again, a more compassionate approach like I've done in this last little segment and maybe help them to understand why they're being critical. Good Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Good point. So, yeah. Because, and you know, I screw up, I screw up on, on Monday. Um, I, I had a patient that came in here and he had a near death experience and he is permissive, was unable or is, is really struggling to help himself. And the guy's going to die. And he brought his wife in. And she was so aggressively antagonistic to trying to help him. Oh. I love carbohydrates. Why should I change? La, 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 la. And I became very aggressive with her. And I'm at fault. I'm at fault. She upset me because he's probably going to die because he doesn't have the capacity to change. And she's facilitating him. Mm, right. But the reality is I got upset at that. I got angry at her. And I should have been compassionate toward her. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. obstacle rather than helping her. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, and exactly the, same, exactly the same about those trolls. Do they think they're helping her by criticizing her? Yeah. See, that's what I don't, no. that's what I have a hard time with. Yeah. It's like, the what was the point of it? I make that mistake from time to time. And I've come to a point now where I can recognize it and try to correct it. I try to correct it before I make it, but sometimes it happens. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I'm doing the best I can and I learn from those mistakes. So those trolls learn from that. Oh, and, and one final thing is if that woman is not eating carbohydrates, well, let me ask you this question. What is the only real thing that an alcoholic must not do? Drink alcohol. 
drink alcohol. It doesn't matter what the hell they drink if it's not alcohol. There are better and worse things, but it really doesn't matter. It's about alcohol, okay? And it's so important that when it comes to obesity, the cause is chronic excessive carbohydrate consumption, period. The only thing we absolutely, if we want to correct ourselves, must not do is eat carbohydrates or drink carbohydrates of any kind. What you do eat, and I know this is going to upset the carnivores, and what you do eat doesn't matter nearly as much as what you don't eat. So the reality is this. I'd rather take a non-carbohydrate eating vegan than a carnivore who eats a little bit of bread. Because at least the vegan is going to be healthier because they're not eating carbohydrates. Yes, they need maybe a few supplements and a few additional things to have a complete or a proper diet, as Ken Berry says. But carnivore isn't um, the, the only way to go. Omnicarnivore isn't the only way to go. The beauty about being human is we've got that whole spectrum to eat. And it's your choice as to what you do, but staying away from carbohydrates is the way to defeat metabolic syndrome. And I know that that's going to upset a lot of people. Bring it. Yeah, no, you, you know, I, and I think that's a lot of what's going on right now, too. <laughs> and I'm about to get to, to some questions here because I think it'll be interesting to see what you have to say. But, yeah. um, you know, there's so much controversy like, oh, no, you can only have salt. You can't have spices. Oh, no, you can't have coffee. Oh, this, that, and the other. Well, the way I'm looking at things is if, <laughs> if, if, it, if you can sustain what you're doing and it is improving your health and you are doing better. And yes, there are some things that I agree, you know, like grains and you know, what, what you're considering carbs, the sugar, the, the, the really starchy stuff, the pastas, the rice, blah, blah, blah. Yes. Um, you know, there are certain things, but beyond that, like you said, there's this whole spectrum and, I personally do not care what people eat. It does not matter to me. And, but, you know, <laughs> past that, oh, geez. Okay. You know, ultimately, the way this works is I can only offer my opinion. It is always the person's decision. And, you know, for example, when we talk about statins, oh, the doctor said I have to take a No, the doctor didn't say you have to take a statin. His opinion or her opinion was that in his opinion, it is good for you to take a statin. In my opinion, it's not good but it is your decision. Unless that doctor, as I said, ties you up with duct tape, opens your <laughs> mouth with a pair of and forces the statin in, you don't have to take it. It is your choice, but we can educate you with our opinion and the best patient is an educated patient. Oh, I could not agree more. So one of the questions I wanted to ask just because it is yeah. just all over social media right now in our community. Okay, what's your take on honey, yay or nay? <laughs> so the way I look at it is this way, and it's so important, is that carbohydrates are not the problem. The problem is my relationship with them, okay? And as an addict, I have an out-of-control relationship with carbohydrates, which means in humans, three things. Glucose, fructose, galactose. Those are the three monosaccharides that enter my bloodstream and affect me uh, uh, from an endorphin uh, perspective and also affect me biologically. So my drugs are glucose, fructose, galactose. It doesn't matter how you camouflage those three things. I don't care if you um, sprinkle some protein and some minerals and vitamins on them and give them a green coat and call them a Granny Smith apple. I don't care if you bake them into a brownie. I don't care if it's a keto brownie. I don't care if it's honey or ice cream. Because that's just, you know, the, 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 I'm a pediatric surgeon. And the little phrase I use with my adolescence is this. Do you have a dog? Yeah, I've got a dog. Do you eat your dog's poop? No, I don't. That's disgusting. I can't even say that. So if I took your dog's poop and I camouflaged it and made it nice and, and gooey and sticky and and a um, little translucent and a little bit sweet. Would you eat your dog's poop? Hell no, I wouldn't. Well, that's honey. If, if my shit is, is glucose, uh, uh, fructose, and galactose, and I camouflage it in honey, I'm still eating shit. And that's a medical <laughs> word, I can use it. So 
<laughs> Does that give you the answer? No. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a carbohydrate addict, stay away from honey. Exactly. That's the way I feel about it too. I mean, if your body can handle it and okay. you're not, you know, metabolically damaged like like I I am, you know, I I just can't see in any situation where that would be a good thing for me to do. I have tested my blood sugar when I've eaten honey because I used to love honey. I used to eat it every day, so you know, it's something that I didn't want to give up. But guess what? I know what it does to me, at least on my blood glucose. Right. So I can just imagine. So, Amber, what about ice cream? Is ice cream good for you? No. <laughs> no. Ice, ice cream is an animal product. Ice cream is dairy. Mm -hmm. How is ice cream different than honey? Well, that's really not the sugar. If you have the sugar, now if it's sugar, just, exactly, yeah. Exactly. And that's the point. That's what people have to understand. The camouflage doesn't matter. Oh, natural sugar. You know, I've got an ad uh, in, in one of my other rooms in the office that came from Time Magazine. And it was an ad from North Carolina that says, um, uh, organic, uh, what natural organic tobacco. Is that safe to smoke? Hell no, it's not. And you go to Cuba and that's how the Cuban government cons their, their folks to smoking cigars or the Cuban cigarettes. Oh, it's, oh, it's natural, it doesn't have any pesticides. It doesn't matter, it's tobacco, it's nicotine. Oh, and it wait. doesn't, sugar is a six-sided uh, hexagonal molecule. It doesn't matter what it comes in. And, and that's what people don't understand. And they get so upset about that. What oh boy, do they. Yeah, see, and yeah. that's kind of the so, way I looked at it too. But, you know, I'm not an expert, but it just kind of seemed to me common sense. You know, if your body can right. handle it, no, okay. There's but... Right, there's a more sophisticated thing and another issue along this line. And, and I know I'm gonna get a lot of flack for this as well, but my issue is pizza. Mm. I don't care if that pizza is made of cauliflower, if it's a pure, if it's a pizza made of a, a chicken bottom. I don't care what the thing is made of. Pizza is my trigger word, and I stay the hell, of in, hell away from anything that is a pizza lookalike. I don't care if it doesn't have carbohydrates, because it's about addiction. You know how many times, well, it's been at least two or three times that under moments of emotional duress, I've tried to eat unsweet baker's chocolate, which tastes like candle wax because it <laughs> has the word chocolate. Okay, that's addiction. That's the alcoholic drinking the mouthwash. Okay, so to to populate your life with lookalikes, it's just mm -hmm. a question of time before you crash and burn. Yeah. And I've evolved away from those things. I use them for a while to get me, me ketosis because it's part of the journey but eventually you want to let go of them. So I, I did the same on, thing. But eventually I'm better than pizza. Pizza mm. cannot be disgusting if you're still doing it in any way, way, shape or form. And the goal here is arrogant integrity. You cannot develop arrogance. A vegan cannot have arrogance over meat if they're still sneaking a steak. <laughs> and and, and here's, here's a little bit of illogic for me. I, and I love this part is, I don't believe a vegan can have arrogant integrity if they're eating a meatless burger. I agree. <laughs> it makes no sense to me. It's like, why the really? hell, if you're so opposed to eating meat, why are you trying to camouflage vegetables yeah. as a meat of meat? Okay? Yeah. I, I don't get anyway. that either. It makes no sense to yeah, me. It doesn't make any sense. You know, okay. that's brainwashing by people trying to sell you something. I agree. Okay, okay I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to just get just a few, because we're kind of coming up to time. I don't want to take too yeah. much of your time. But, um, uh, what is the main cause of kidney stones? Uh, apparently, this person's doctor never told them. All they, they told them is just make sure you drink more water. Yeah, there, there's several causes of kidney stones. The most common form, and I've actually got a video coming out on this in, in oh, next week. Or two. Cool. Um, the most common source of kidney stones are oxalic acid or calcium oxalate stones. And oxalate is, uh, it's called a divalent cat uh, or anion. Oxalate is, think of oxalate, oxalate is a sponge. And unfortunately, there are a few people that really have no understanding of what the hell they're talking about that have condemned oxalates from vegetables. Okay, and this whole concept of oxalate consumption, oh, oxalates, so you eat something and it magically appears in your kidneys, that's garbage. Every mitochondria in every cell 
every time you use fat or sugar, you are producing oxalate. It's part of the Krebs cycle. It's part of the energy cycle. Oxalate is a two-carbon two molecule that is vital to life, okay? Um, what happens, though, is oxalates, the human body use, uses oxalates as part of that energy cycle. The other place that the human body uses oxalates is to chelate. What chelate means is to attach itself to what we call divalent cations, like magnesium, uh, calcium, those are iron, those are is iron one? Yeah, those are. And if you've got too much of that, too much heavy metals in your body, oxalates actually are there to sponge and cleanse the body of those. So it has a vital, critical function. Yes, we get some in vegetables that we eat, but vegetables do not cause oxalate poisoning. Interesting. The, the oxalates in the in the kidney usually come from amino acids that get broken down as a source of energy. Because protein is only a reserve source of energy. It should not be a primary source of energy. And then that, those oxalates are peed out. They get filtered out in the, in, the, um, in the kidney. And they do their job of combining with calcium. So they're getting rid of calcium from your body. And that calcium forms little stones that occur in the kidney. So it's not because cows don't get oxalate stones. And man didn't get oxalate stones way back when we ate normal food, whether it was vegetable or uh, carnivore. So this whole thing that oxalates are so bad, that's an assumption. That's mm. the same assumption that we had. Eating saturated fat clogs our blood vessels and the whole right. thing that LDL is bad. Eating oxalates does not cause harm if you are on a proper ketogenic diet. If you are fat adapted in ketosis and you're eating a decent amount of fat, Oxalates cause no harm. And I will go to town with anybody on this. Um, and there are a couple of people that I've been on stage with, and Eric Westerman, who's a buddy of mine, is on the same page. We've way blown that out of proportion. Mm. All because it goes in your mouth, it doesn't mean it causes harm. Very and interesting. It's so important to understand the biochemistry of where those kidney stones come from. And there are plenty of people on a ketogenic diet, high fat, low carb diet, who are eating a ton of vegetables, who have gotten rid of their kidney stones. So that is absolutely not true. Now, the, the caveat to that, the simple thing is this. If you don't like vegetables, don't eat them. Don't, but don't blame them for causing you all kinds of harm. Very interesting. I haven't really heard that approach before or that. Right, because there are three words that we use, and this is the mistake of modern healthcare. We confuse assumptions, associations, and causality. Mm -hmm. And causality that eating vegetables causes kidney stones is an almost impossible thing to demonstrate. Even associating vegetables with kidney stones in a proper human diet, Ken Berry's proper human diet, is also not demonstrable. So therefore, it's an assumption. And there are a few people out there that spout forth and, and blah, 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 that have assumed that eating vegetables causes kidney stones. Very interesting. So I know that may have shattered your world, but the biology <laughs> does not support that assumption. It is a little surprising to me. Um, I, I mean, I, it's not that I don't believe it, but it is a little surprising because you do hear that, you know? <laughs> and like with anything, the more you hear it, the more you kind of like, huh, maybe this is what happened when this happened. Oh, maybe it's this, you know? So you kind of like cause it. You know what, Amber? You know what I'm seeing every day in my office now is people coming in taking tons of ashwagandha. I just like the name ashwagandha, but I have no idea what it's supposed to do. These people, when I ask them, why you take, oh, somebody pitched them some mythical properties and they now think it's going to improve their health. So they're, they're buying this crap and they're taking it. They have no idea what it's doing to them. There's an assumption that ashwagandha does something magical or mystical to you and people are making a ton of money off it, but there is no biology to it. Hmm. Very interesting. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And that, that's like kind of... Right. The entire statin industry is built on the assumption that saturated fat causes harm. 
And there is categorically strong evidence that saturated fat causes no harm. But we have a, a, a multi-trillion dollar industry worldwide, which is the sale of statins, built on an assumption. Yeah. <laughs> okay? That's so very exciting. Oh, yeah, I know statins are, statins are useless, but so are vegetables bad for you. Those assumptions are just assumptions. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> you learn something new every day. That's why I love that. I never, I never want to stop learning. <laughs> oh, okay. Let me see. Um, okay, I did that one. Uh, what is the real cause of hypertension? Is it really salt? Are we blaming the right thing? Okay. Very good question. And the first thing I'm going to say is there's a whole bunch of different causes of 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 hypertension. The most common diagnosis though, so I'm not going to talk about the other causes, but the most common cause of hypertension is what, what they call essential hypertension, which means we don't know why. Okay. So here's the way it works. The human body is designed to use salt as its primary molecule to control blood pressure and blood volume. And there's something called the renin-angiotensin system, which is the system that links the kidneys, the blood vessels, and the lungs to manage salt levels and salt concentration in the body. And salt sucks up water, and it manages fluid volume because salt and water are intimately attached, okay? So the human body very, very tightly regulates salt. No matter how much salt you eat or don't eat, your blood, your blood salt level, and most of the salt is in your bloodstream, is very tightly controlled around 140. It very rarely moves more than below 138 or above 142 because the human body very tightly conserves sodium chloride because it's critical to blood volume and blood pressure. Every single or almost every single blood pressure medication on the market messes with the body's sodium control system whether it's Lasix that allows you to pee out salt, mm -hmm. whether it is sodium calcium channel blockers, uh, whether it's potassium, uh, uh, but they all mess with a sodium system because it's so integral to blood volume and blood pressure, okay? Salt, very stable. And one of the jobs of the kidney and the colon, the kidney and the colon, are the two places where sodium exchange happens in the human body. And in fact, more sodium exchange happens in the colon than in the kidney. That's why carnivores don't get constipated. So the, the only job of the human colon is to exchange water and salt. And the kidney's job is to exchange water and salt. Now, if you don't have enough salt, the bloodstream will hang on to salt. And in order to pee and poop, it will exchange magnesium. It will exchange calcium. It will exchange potassium so that you can pee because it preserves salt. So people that have low magnesium, people that have low calcium, it's not because their magnesium levels are low. There's a ton of magnesium in your diet. It's because you don't have enough salt. So salt mm. is highly conserved in the human body. And I can tell you categorically, when your sodium levels go down or, or up, that is near death. Wow. You drop your, you drop your, your sodium level by 10 points into the high 120s or low 130s, your brain can infarct. It's called central pontine myelinolysis. And in my liver transplant days, we had a few patients where they lost that sodium and their brain would infarct. Same thing when your salt goes high. It is highly conserved. And when your salt changes dramatically, that is a near-death or a death experience. Okay. Now, let's look at a different molecule. Let's look at sugar. Sugar acts identically to salt. Sugar, every molecule of sugar in the bloodstream is attached to a molecule of water. So sugar and water move simultaneously across membranes in your bloodstream. Sugar levels fluctuate massively. And if you're, in a if you're a diabetic, your sugar levels can fluctuate by 100 points, 100 milligrams in, in literally an hour. You can have... So think about if every molecule of sugar is attached to a molecule of water, when your sugar levels are doing this, think about what's happening to your blood volume. And blood volume and blood pressure are intimately tied to each other. Not only that, when that sugar transitions into your endothelial cells, the cells that line your, your bloodstream, they swell up, they bulge into the lumen, they narrow the pipe, mm -hmm. 
which okay. puts back pressure radius to the fourth power, back pressure to the heart. So the heart has to pump harder. And when that bump mm. pump, when that, when that heart pumps harder, the muscle thickens. It's like doing push-ups, your muscles get bigger. And uh, the heart, that's called hypertension. So essential hypertension, where we really don't know what causes it, is very rare. The most common cause of hypertension is carbophilic hypertension. Chronic excessive carbohydrate consumption, the standard American diet, is the commonest cause of hypertension. And we understand that, we know what that is. And you ask anybody that's been on a, that is, has been sustainably on a ketogenic diet. You've been on a ketogenic diet where you're really not eating carbohydrates. I hate the word keto, where you're on an ultra low carbohydrate, high fat diet, and you're in fat adapted ketosis. Your blood pressure is well below normal. And most people that are sustainably on a ketogenic diet do not need blood pressure medication unless it's for another reason. Wow. So, and in fact, I'll go this far that 120 over 80 is not normal blood pressure for humans. It's normal blood pressure for humans on a standard American diet. I would say that somewhere around 110 over 60 is a normal human blood pressure, assuming that the normal human condition is one of ketosis. Wow. That is fascinating. Yes. And that is, I'm, I'm, I'm blown away right now because I never really uh, saw it that way or heard of it that way. So I definitely learned something. I mean, this little book, this little book, it's called the acid truth and basic facts with a sweet touch and enlightenment. L Y T. This is a book that discusses all of that. It's a little practical handout that we di- that I used in my training in medical school, which is 253 years ago. They knew it then. Wow. And this hasn't changed. Biology has not changed. Wow. Okay. But we've forgotten about this. And it's all in here. That is so, very, anyway. very interesting. No, thank you we've for that. So much of what we know. Yeah. Anyway, no, I, 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 I love learning. That's awesome. I'm going to drop another name. Tim Noakes was my professor of physiology. Oh, wow. And for those of you who know Tim, I mean, he's an icon in what we do, and he's been a mentor for me for a long time. And he taught me to think biologically. And that was one of the greatest lessons I've ever learned. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, Tim Noakes, I love him. He's been through a lot. Bless his heart. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, we are are running pretty late, and I know you've had a very long day, so we will end it there. It has been a pleasure and a very huge learning experience for me, So, uh, and I'm sure it's going to be very enlightening for uh, many of my followers as well. So thank you so much for, for joining me on my podcast. I really appreciate it. And it's been really fun. And so y'all subscribe to my channel and go follow Dr. Sarwis. And I will put all his stuff below. And if he comes up with the video of of what we were talking about earlier, I will post that below too. If if I end up not posting this before, you know, I mean, after all that. So I will have everything below. So again, thank you so much. And I will talk to you online. Thanks for what you do. It's, It's excellent. Thank yeah, you. thank you. And and watch for the memes. They're coming. <laughs> Bye. You have a great evening. Thank you so much. Bye.